You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. We've got another great episode for you all. I'm really excited to introduce an old friend of mine in many ways. I think I've known him for about 10 years. Uh, We've got the one and the only Johnny Rashid, who uh, has been pastor of Circle of Hope in Philadelphia for more than 10 years. Uh, He's an abolitionist and a housing activist. He's an avid cook who blogs at johnnyrashid.com and hosts Circle of Hope's Resist and Restore podcasts. He studied journalism, education, and history at Temple University and completed his Master of Divinity at Palmer Theological Seminary. And he's got a really excellent new book, um, and it's called Jesus Takes a Side. Um, and the subtitle is Embracing the Political Demands of the Gospel. And I got a self note, just mention real quick that I also, you'll f- see me mentioned, uh, not mentioned, uh, highlighted in the forward because I wrote the forward for this book. I'm so really right. excited to be supporting my Philly brother, Johnny Rashid. Welcome to Inverse Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's so fun to be here. Johnny, um, as a way of starting, love to give you an opportunity to discuss um, this new book. Um, uh, sketch it any which way you want, um, but just as a way of uh, inviting people into um, recent projects for you. So the, the purpose of the, of the book, why I wrote it, was to help people who felt um, an itch to act against injustice they saw in the world but had a hesitation to engage politically. So they would see things, hear things, experience things that convicted them, made their stomach turn, made their heart heavy, and but didn't know how to engage in a political process to change things. They had a hesitation. They thought it was inappropriate to be political. Um, they may have thought it was wrong to be political, especially as Christians, to engage in politics. And... I hope what I write gives people permission to be to be political, to express political ideas, and to act in political ways against injustice. Mm. Um, so that that's that's that, that's the heart of it. It, it. It's it's meant to permit political action more so than it is to convince someone to kind of change their mind about politics. It's sure. rather to activate them when they're already moving in that direction. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, is an important distinction given uh, the number of books that are being released at the moment. Um, not that there's not a place for that, but I appreciate you kind of spelling that out. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, um, in fact, I was just having a conversation with Renee um, yesterday. That's my wife. And we were talking about, just the ways in which so many people even just conflate partisanship with political, right? What it means Mm. to be political. And so in conflating the two, they often then 
handcuff themselves. So they're both hands behind their backs where um, there's no way where they can imagine engaging. And I think that um, helping to understand the political nature of the gospel, right, is really important for today's time. And so, yeah, I think that um, there's a, a need for that kind of pastoral, clear, just, you know, articulation of uh, why we must act in ways that are consistent with, you know, the birth, life, death, teachings, and reign of Jesus Christ. So, yeah, I think that's it's a timely word. Which, I mean, true partisanship also restricts one's politics to a particular, like, geographical location as well. How How is that helpful in understanding, you know, this last week in Colombia or in France or, uh, or like, the, the latest news from the union movement in the UK, those kind of politics of whether you're Democrat or Republican aren't helpful right. in my part of the world. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I think there are times where the gospel's political demands appear to be incidentally partisan, but they're not right. partisan on purpose, right? right? So we act against injustice. And sometimes right. it appears like we're acting in a partisan way, um, right. And overcoming what I would say the shame associated with being partisan, as well as simply feeling like it's impolite to be that way is helpful. A lot of people say, are you writing this book because Jesus takes like the democratic side? Jesus is a Democrat. Is that why you're writing it? Um, <laughs> and it, it was, it's really surprising um, because, you know, I'm a, I will say I'm a registered Democrat in the U.S. and I voted for a demo for the it's generally the Democratic ticket in local and state and national elections every year since I've been eligible to vote. But no, that doesn't mean that the side Jesus takes is the Democrat side, because right. I mean, the Democrats are ripe for criticism in terms of their general ineptitude and um, real just cowardice in the face of injustice right on their own. But there, yeah. I also write that there are failures as moral leaders, too, that yeah. during the Trump administration, they did a massive investigation on the sexual assault allegations against Brett Kavanaugh. And it was a big deal. And it was super disappointing when he became a Supreme Court justice. But when when there was a sexual assault allegation against their presumptive nominee, Joe Biden, it was silent. Yeah. So that kind of hypocrisy demonstrates their lack of moral leadership. Like you're not going to lead us in this way because you're clearly just interested in political power. That I still voted for Joe Biden, but that has nothing to do with the moral courage, consistency, and clarity of this arbitrary political party. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, and I think, which I think is what some of what you're saying, right? Like um, partisanship, will lead someone to have like an allegiance to the party rather than collaborating at times with the party that best aligns with the convictions, right. Of God's reign here on earth. Totally. And so, and so in what ways Kim, like I, I would probably be in a very similar boat, right. Mostly voting, um, Republican, uh, not Republican, <laughs> um, Democrat, definitely. Um, but also, but sometimes third parties, right. Um, and, and I think that uh, our commitments, you know, to, you know, the flourishing of everyone and God shalom and justice for those that are the most vulnerable in our society um, will at times require us to partner in 
bigger or smaller ways with different political movements, but also to have a level of distance where we can have a prophetic witness and speak truthfully, right, about Absolutely. the failures of our leaders and the systems that we are embedded in. Yeah. Andrew, I, I know we haven't even got to uh, ground it in a particular passage yet, but I will say for international listeners that um, while, while um, uh, you know, there, there might be 300 million people in the world that are from the geographical location that is referred to as the United States of America, um, even those of us who aren't from that place um, uh, are not free from America as an ideology. And in that sense, like this conversation is actually important on an international level because of how it shapes even the way um, Australians think about voting. We have a completely different system. system um, right. uh, but people get still trapped in this American two-party system, even though it's not our system, just because the amount of media that we consume from the US and the English speaking world generally does that. Um, so uh, the the implications of this conversation and your book, Johnny, are important for the rest of the world, despite the fact that our centre-right party is to the left of the Democratic Party. It, it still has implications how we think and how we um, uh, put together um, these kind of things, particularly those who um, are, are Christians, because so much of um, uh, uh, Christian uh, publishing and media come out of, um, you know, this geographical location just south of Canada and, and north of Mexico. You see how Jared just bragged about how the center right party still has socialized medicine and we don't, <laughs> even on the Democratic side in the U.S.? I, I, have still, to, I have to deal with sick. this all the time. They're I'm reminded. still taken care of. You know, I'm reminded of how conservative of a nation we are on a weekly basis. <laughs> and it makes me cry. Laugh, you know, uh, laugh now, cry later, right? But but yes. Uh, but anyway, Johnny, let's, uh, one of the things we do like to do um, is to ground our uh, conversation, um, just starting off with a particular biblical text. And so have you chosen it? And can you read that text for us? Sure. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 12, and verses 12. I'm going to stop at. 26. This is from the NRSV, the updated edition. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For it is one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the, foot's, if the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, why would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those members of the body that we think of as less, think of less honorable, we close with greater honor. And our respectable, our less respectable members are treated with greater respect, whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, given the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, 
all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Amen, amen. Johnny, um, we're saying before we started pressing record, I think you're the first guest to ever choose this passage. So uh, we're looking forward to having you generally. Now we're looking forward to having you in particular. But let's start with um, theology as biography. Johnny, when do you first remember encountering the Bible? I grew up in a fundamentalist evangelical Christian home from with and I grew up with immigrants from Egypt. My parents hmm. immigrated from the e Egypt in the early 80s. They came from a, a, a predominantly Muslim country. Egypt's constitution is fairly secular, but it's still a Muslim constitution. The majority hmm. of the country is Muslim. You're looking at 90% Muslim, 10% Christian. And of those Christians, almost all of them are Coptic Christians. Hmm. And there's a small percentage of Protestant Christians um, they were old Methodists in Egypt, and then they immigrated to the U.S. and kind of got sucked into um, evangelicalism. Wow. Um, and they did so because of Reagan's hostility. They moved right during the Reagan administration. Like, they just absorbed 1980s American culture. So mm. my dad loved Magic Johnson, Showtime, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. That was He was a Laker <laughs> fan, right? And when the Sixers played... Because I'm, you know, I'm a Philly fan. Love the Sixers. Hey, in the 2001 Finals, when the Sixers played the Lakers, Dad and I really had this oh, rivalry yeah. going, right? Um, <laughs> and Allen Iverson still remains my uh, favorite athlete ever. Anyway, oh. they just got absorbed into <laughs> 1980s American culture and into 1980s American politics. And so he, because of his experience as a religious minority in the U.S., he allied with other Christians that made him in the ma religious majority in the U S and mm. became sided with whatever political party um, opposed his enemies, which were Muslims that oppressed him in the, in the, in Egypt. And so I'm I became deeply empathetic for his experience. And so he grew, he grew us up in a fundamentalist conservative Christian environment. And the Bible was just a part of our life. And it was just interesting, even as I look back, we, we, we gave the same kind of sacred honor to the Bible that Muslims would to their holy text, the Quran. Mm. And so it had even special honor, more than I would say, I guess, American Western Christians would give it. Like we mm -hmm. couldn't, maybe, maybe this is true in your households. I don't know if you grew up this way, but we couldn't put the Bible on the floor. Things like that. There was a special, like it was real special. You couldn't, you couldn't in any way disrespect it. You certainly couldn't put your shoes on it. You couldn't leave it somewhere inappropriate, right? It would never be in the bathroom, these types of things. And so we grew up with a very sacred um, understanding of the Bible. And my dad would lead us into just reading the scripture. I remember he said, we're going to start the Bible and we're going to start with Matthew. And we just started reading Matthew together. I remember one car ride where my dad, he said, Johnny, read Hebrews out loud. I didn't know why I was even doing it. So then I just started reading Hebrews out loud and I read the whole thing. You know, I didn't even, and it, and it was like an instant, it was an instant response, right? Like I didn't even question it. I think I was just excited that he wanted me to do something. So I read, I read Hebrews, which by the way, is a complicated book. <laughs> I mean, I didn't even understand what I was reading. I just read it. And so the Bible was very much entrenched in my 
believe in my under in my uh, understanding of what it meant to be a Christian, and I still am very much a biblicist, very much oriented towards the Bible. And even though I read it and conclude very differently than my dad, I have a great respect for the Bible. And so even as they became uh, more progressive, more oriented towards social justice and things like that, it was through the Bible that I did that. And I didn't lose the respect that I grew up having for the Bible. Even if, it, even if that respect changed, even if I started reading it differently, even if I understood it differently, um, it was certainly instilled in me about how important it was. So the Bible was a family member to us. It was super important. Um, and it still mm. remains that way too. Yeah, no, that's really good. That's really good. Now I can't, you know, I can't just skip over just because, you know, the Philly love, I can't just not <laughs> skip over the fact you mentioned the Sixers and Iverson and the clash between them and the Lakers. Hey, we're not going to sit there, but I just got to um, give some love for that as well. well Drew, uh, I, I want to know since, <laughs> yeah. since we are going there. Okay, um, okay. Johnny, what's the connection to L.A.? Did, did you um, uh, grow up in L.A., then Philly? Or your dad no, just he just like, moved. Because the Lakers was just so big, right? Is that sure. what it was? Look, yeah. <laughs> if you for move, the same reason I loved the Lakers in primary school. If you move to the, to a country and you have no allegiance, like I, I, I am very proud to be a Philadelphia fan. I love it. Yeah. I love our teams. But if you just come to a country, you can just pick anything you want. You don't, you don't have any particular, Egypt doesn't have a team. So right. you don't have any particular loyalty. So then you can just, I mean, it was the Lakers and Celtics, right? It's the eighties, right? What are you going to do? It's, yeah. that's, Magic that's Johnson. Do. Yeah. Exactly. It, was, it wasn't even a and choice, of course, right? Like, like every other kid, you know, when I was in elementary school, you know, we loved Air Jordan. That's how it works. Michael Jordan, mm -hmm. you know, greatest of all time. Right, Talk to all right, the old right. guys about who's better between LeBron and Michael Jordan. We all have our answer, right, you know, right. and we <laughs> act old when we say it. We say it's the same <laughs> as it used to be. You don't know what you're talking about. The game's way different, you know. <laughs> but on a more serious note, I mean, I do think, you know, I forget who. There's a scholar who does who's talked about... Um, uh just it's actually like what you talked about in terms of the reverence for the physical book itself right the bible mm -hmm, in terms mm -hmm. of the physicality of it and the sacredness of it i actually think there's something quite ancient about like I, if i remember reading right like because i mean you think about literacy rates for a very long time sure. in the life of the church most people were not actually reading the bible right um and so their reverence for the Bible was actually more in relationship to the physicality of it than it was actually reading it and trying to, you know, for the average kind of life spirituality of the, of common folks. And so anyway, I do think there's, that's something interesting also to kind of think through. I'm curious if, if that would have been, if that is some of just what was the reality in Egypt at that time, um or we're like yeah but because i don't think in general um certainly in my experience i don't think most americans have that level i do think there was some in my family but not, probably not to the level of like you can't put it on the floor i, I think that sure. probably went beyond certainly what i was experiencing i don't know if, I, yeah. I think part of it is definitely syncretism between muslim and christian culture like my parents definitely yeah. acted like muslims in ways they're definitely teetotalers for example yeah. and it was just, it's interesting to um, see how faith, interfaith dialogue and interfaith connection works, even between actually two um, 
enemies, so to speak. You know, in Egypt, you yeah, the the Coptics will tattoo a cross on their hand. They name their children um, conspicuously Christian names, biblical names, so as to distinguish themselves from the Muslim population. But even despite that enmity, there is a, a fusion of cultural understanding about faith. Um, sure. Most yeah. of Egypt is illiterate, though. So the, there isn't a universal kind of um, appreciation for the literacy connected to the Bible, even if there is a reverence for it. Yeah. My dad, they, my dad's a pastor's kid, so he grew up with the Bible, and mm. they were poor, um, very, very poor. And poverty actually shaped my father. Um, and for he, he became a physician in the U.S., and that education, that um, knowledge, that that um, intelligence that he really poured himself into became a part of his own. This is how I'm going to develop status. This is how I'm going. This is this is how I'm going to lift myself out of this socioeconomic status is to study. And he's that's been important to him. And he raised us the same way. And so we always took academics seriously, even though he grew up in poverty. Um, and it's interesting to watch him work. I, I'm not sure why I'm talking about my dad so much. I hope this is okay. Um, yeah. when, when we spent time in Egypt, the way he opposed the, the form of government and the police and the president made him seem like a radical dissident. Mm-hmm. Like he used language to describe the Egyptian form of government in the same way that I would have described the U.S. under at the time it would have been George W. Bush. Like yeah. we had the same um, resistance to the politics of the place we came from, we were born in. And it was just so interesting to watch him basically act like a socialist, you know, yeah. um, even though he absolutely wouldn't in the United States. Right. So well, it, was, it was just super interesting to see how our lived experience just informs our politics in the locations that we live in, you know, yeah. his yeah, experience as a racial, as a religious minority shaped his politics. Whereas my experience as an ethnic and racial minority in the U S shaped mine. So there is yeah. a lot of similarity despite mm. our historic conflict, not over the Sixers and the Lakers, but over everything. <laughs> well, yeah, that's good. fascinating. And those, yeah. those dynamics you're naming in terms of sacred texts, um, they're, they're ancient. I mean, as you were mentioning, Drew, um, and ancient to Egypt as well, in terms of stories of the desert, Amas and Abbas, there's um, one famous story about a, um, uh, a, a desert father who um, uh, memorized the Bible and, and knew it so well that he sold um, his only scriptures um, to, to feed others and, and literally gave it away. And in there is kind of that dynamic that to, um, to love the text so much that you embody the text, that you give the text away for others um, mm. is, is something that sometimes uh, people um, don't go all the way down in that journey. Sure, <laughs> You've got people sure. who disregard the text or people who um, love the text so much but don't love others. Um, and it's, uh, it's ancient stories like that from your homeland that still have so much to teach us today. Yeah. So, Johnny, I'd be curious to hear, um, you know, as you were sharing some of your early memories of encountering the Bible, how would you, and I think you started to hint at it, like, how would you describe um, the character of your encounters with Scripture? Like, did you experience the Bible as 
liberating, as oppressive, as something else? Um, how would you describe um, those encounters with scripture? I certainly experienced it as it was liberating at first when I read it, but liberating because it first condemned me. That's just how the theology oh. worked, you know, um, real low anthropology, a lot of criticism of us, you know, you'd go to church and you'd want to feel beaten up so that mm. Jesus could save you every Sunday. That's kind of mm. like a fundamentalist evangelical trope. Right. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't believe like, like I felt so ashamed of who I was and I knew that Jesus would save me. And I was worried about condemnation, hell. Um, my parents are predisposed, uh, predispensationalists of the rapture too, and all these things that were going to happen to me because I was a sinner. You know, there was such a focus on sin and piety that I never thought I would make it. The assumption was if you were saved, you wouldn't act this way. Right. And so I definitely felt that. And, you know, Paul's words to the Romans, I believe there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Um, really hard for me to hold on to really hard for me to believe. I always thought there was condemnation. And part of that came from the strict upbringing that I have, and it came from other places. And so though I believe Jesus would save me, I wasn't exactly sure why. And I was constantly questioning that and questioning my own, the authenticity of my own faith because doubt was never embraced. And so even when I would doubt, even when I would wonder, there's definitely this creeping idea in me that hey, you don't really believe this. And because I had doubt and because I professed faith, I thought, well, you're a fraud because the words you're saying, you sometimes question. And that, um, I suffered a cognitive dissonance because I held both of those ideas together. Um, So I did believe that scripture was liberating, but it definitely felt harmful to me. Um, And even the image of God the Father felt harmful to me. Even I, 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 I immediately recapitulated the tension that I had with my dad right with God the Father. And that was, that's just, I couldn't understand because I felt like God, I felt like my dad was ashamed of me. And we, my dad and I definitely, as I was differentiating in my youth, and, and this was a political issue for me, like the the political differences between my dad and I really came to fruit during 9-11 and the war on terror. This, this is how I knew how his politics were formed. Right when the towers fell, I knew because of how I grew up that it was a Muslim terror attack. I didn't have any question about it, right? And my dad did too. And I mean, and so did all sorts of people and pundits and geopolitical. So it's not like we were especially insightful, but we knew that this is where it came from. And our reaction was so different. He was like, yes, we need to attack Iraq, attack Afghanistan, undo Al-Qaeda, all these things. And I was like, hey, I don't know if Jesus works this way with the bombing and the killing of all these people, these kids that look like us, these people that look like us. And then look what's happening to us here. Look at how we're being stereotyped here. Why do we have to? wave American flags? Why do we have to wear American flag pins? Why do we have to be conspicuously patriotic? What did we do? Why do we have to act this way, right? And so my dad and I had this very different experience of the same event. Um, And that became the battleground that we had our personal relationship over. 
Mm. We, 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 we combated about politics, but it was about so much more than politics as I was becoming my own person. Um, and I'm grateful for spiritual direction and psychotherapy that's actually helped me connect with my dad in new ways that even though we disagree politically, and I talk about this in the book, how politics is going to get between relationships. Um, he still, and, and he still respects me. And um, even just recently, I, I, I was in a personal situation and I said, you know, dad, I just feel so ashamed. And I feel like I brought shame on our family. And he said something like, oh, come on, we, we love you, right? And that was a liberating moment for me where I felt included in the clan, despite engaging in what would be dishonorable behavior in the Middle East. Um, and so I eventually took hold of the Bible and kind of made it my own. Um, and learned how to make it liberating for me. Um, and, 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 and I overcame the issues that I had relating my father to this heavenly father. And I, I, and I learned a whole new way of approaching it. And honestly, instead of praying, dear father, for a long time, I just prayed, dear Jesus. And that mm -hmm. little switch helped me stay in the faith and engage with the Bible in a new way. And I learned that I could read it for myself and understand it from my own context. And I didn't have to submit it to what others understood, that they didn't have a monopoly on reading the Bible and that mm -hmm. I could read it too. And a lot of people throughout history have found the Bible's words to be liberating despite, despite the oppression that they faced because of it, right? Yeah. Like to me, the greatest evidence of the, first the liberation of God, but the redemptive and healing value of the Bible is the fact that enslaved people in the U.S. could use the Bible for their own liberation, despite mm -hmm. it be, being used to oppress them. Now, it's, it's entirely understandable why someone would want to discard the Bible in that moment. And I have no issue with that personally. If that's where you are, I'm not here to tell you that that's wrong. I totally understand why you would want to let go of a text that was used to oppress you, to rape you, to kill you. Mm. But for people who found it liberating and could actually talk back to their, the people that enslaved them, that's, 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 that's so miraculous to me and, and indicative of the power of the text and the power of Jesus, you know? Um, mm. And I think, and Drew and I spoke about this once when I was interviewing him um, for his book, um, but you have to do a lot of work to make the Bible not be a liberating text. <laughs> That's right. You know, even today I was just reading Galatians five, which is about the fruits of the spirit. And I'm like, well, you really have to do a lot of work to make this like an individualistic capitalistic book. Like mm -hmm. it's really like you have to, you're doing a lot of eisegesis. You're doing a lot mm -hmm. of addition to the text because the plain reading of it, you know, in the second book, God liberates all the slaves. So what are we talking about? Like, it doesn't make any sense. What are we talking about? There is no other story here. It's about liberation. There's no other way to do it. And it's just so obvious. Like to me, when I was writing this, I was like, just, just beginning in the gospel of Luke, it smacks you in the face. This is about liberating the oppressed. God came mm -hmm. to liberate the poor. Jesus came for this reason. You know, Mary sings about it. Jesus quotes Isaiah. John the Baptist does the same, right? It's so clear that this is what's happening in the story um, and in the meta narrative of the text.
So it eventually did become very liberating for me. Yeah, Johnny, I would love to give you an opportunity to actually explore um, how you took it back and uh, how it became liberating. Uh, I mean, any which way you'd like to do, but I guess in a way that for others who are listening and thinking, how can I engage um, the scriptures in ways that um, uh, do meet that sneaking suspicion, that intuition that this is um, actually for my flourishing instead of um, for my oppression. Um, What kind of lens would you encourage others to explore? Well, I mean, as Anabaptists, a lot of us are going to start with the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to, that's, that's kind of where we're going to center our understanding. And, And that's a great place to start, right? The, the ethic of Jesus that Matthew compiles in the Sermon on the Mount um, is so simple, but so clearly the, the, the love and the grace that we afford one another changes everything. You love your enemies, you love your neighbors, you turn the other cheek, you're nonviolent. Not, the nonviolent ethic changes our politics because politics in some ways is fundamentally violent. So how do we help it become nonviolent? You know? it, and then if, if you actually internalize that nonviolent idea, you have to ask questions. Like, like it didn't make sense to me when Jesus said, love your enemies. So why are we bombing them? Like, what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. Like I, this is not a stretch in any possible way. You know, Jesus says, and, and following Jesus is helpful for this. He says to Peter, you know, whoever lives by the sword dies by the sword. Right. So why are we arming? Why are we protecting ourselves with weapons and guns? And why is this so important, especially to Christians? What's happening that this basic peaceful message of the gospel is being subverted? So I would start with the Sermon on the Mount, but then also pay attention to the Jewish tradition right in the New Testament, right? Mm. Like Jared and I, you were talking about this with me today. Like I was doing some work in Galatians 5. Paul says, there's no greater law than to love one another, right? Love, Love your neighbor as yourself. And I was thinking, Oh, this is what Jesus says the great commandment is. Galatians is a really early book. The gospels were written later. This idea must have been floating around. And so the professor, Matt Thiessen and Jared are saying, yeah, this was common Jewish knowledge at the time. And so when you begin to know the Jesus in the Bible, the Paul in the Bible, you begin to understand the Old Testament differently too, which is appropriate. A lot of times Christians, for some reason, they say like the God of the New Testament is nonviolent and the God of the Old Testament is violent. And they do this weird blasphemous thing that doesn't, yeah. you know, God's yep. the same today, Nasty yesterday, yeah. today, tomorrow, right? We all know this. God's love endures forever. And when you begin to relate to Jesus as Lord, you begin to understand that the characteristics you love about Jesus were in the God of Israel the whole time. That's right. Just expressing right. it over and over again. And so we, I think that for me, reading it from the Sermon on the Mount out redeemed the whole text. It, re- it, 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 it hugged the whole Bible and you mm. can just see the character of God in the Bible. Right. And so uh, an, uh, Abraham, Joshua Heschel in the prophets, mm-hmm. I'm reading the prophet. It's a Jewish text. The dude marched with Martin Luther King. He's a, mm-hmm. he's it's, it's, it's really the, one of the most important books I've read. And he's this, there it is. And he's describing the God, he's not talking about Jesus at all. And I'm thinking he's describing the character of Christ to me. Like it's so clear. And he's just being um, a Jewish rabbi in the moment. He's just giving us this understanding of the prophets. Um, And that is 
that to me, that's a whole new way of understanding um, the Bible. And so I would, I would stick with the most plain reading you can do. It's overwhelming in the text that this book is about liberating people. It is about liberating um, oppressed people. And the feedback I've gotten actually the last two days from two completely godless people. When I say godless, I'm not using it as a negative. They have no faith. They're just purely materialists, just atheists, agnostic, indifferent people. And they're reading the book and they're like, oh, wow, these points make so much sense according to the texts you're using. So a plain reading, <laughs> I still think, is That's liberating, right. you know? Yeah. So yeah. I would stick with a plain reading, but then also take Jesus's words seriously. When he says love our enemies, when he says turn the other cheek, actually apply that, you know? Even when Paul says the fruit of the spirit, what if we use the fruit of the spirit to inform our politics? What would that look like? You know, and just and just be honest about the plain reading of it. That's good. That's good. You know, it, as you, when you started off about, you know, as Anabaptists and you talked about the Sermon on the Mount, I was uh, teaching, um, what was it, like two weeks ago, I was teaching an intensive course in Chicago for Northern Seminary. I was teaching Anablactivism. Very and, good, Drew. Yeah. And I, um, and I was kind of framing like some of the differences between like black theology and Anabaptist. So I joked and I said, you know, if you're Anabaptist, um, your canon within the canon is Sermon on the Mount, right? And then I said, and if you're, you know, in the black theological tradition, you might maybe go to like Luke 4, right? 18 and 19, right? You know, not, um, I was doing a couple of like back and forth with some of those kind of things just to kind of have fun a little bit. But, um, but I do... Um, I do think I appreciate both the ways in which you um, lifting up, right, the the teachings, uh, in some ways, the pinnacle of Jesus's teachings, but are then also holding and not allowing that to be severed from um, the Hebrew scriptures, right, and who we see God revealed um, as, uh, as Israel journeys with God uh, over yeah. the centuries, right? I think that holding those two things together is actually quite powerful and unfortunately is um, not... Uh, it's it's a rare way uh, for Christians, especially certainly in the United States. I don't know what you want to say, Jared, about in Australia, but certainly rare to 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 hear folks hold those two things together, which should never have been severed in the first place. Yeah, Johnny, I'll, I'll be go quoting ahead, you that that bit about um, how if you go deep with the Sermon on the Mount, it begins to to hug all, all of the scriptures. Uh, I love that imagery. That's that's good, mate. I'll be quoting that. Well, he is dead. I mean, we know Jesus is drawing. He doesn't have the New Testament. He's drawing on the Old Testament to conclude these things. <laughs> yep, there is exactly. no other thing. So he's doing that. You know, yep. he's yep. a serious student of the Bible. He's holding it together. And when, when, when we sever the two, I think bad things happen. Not bad only, right. only right. anti-Semitism, but right. there's this weird rejection of the law, of ethics, of rules that leads pastors down bad roads, the worst mm. roads you can imagine. I won't go into all of it, but I really do think that when we resist, um, when we misunderstand Paul and Jesus and try to abolish the Old Testament mm. and the rule and the, and the law of Moses specifically, um, we get into territory that's very unethical and very dangerous. Mm. Um, and Anabaptists be warned about this specifically, I, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. So, 
given your uh, approach of, uh, you know, engaging scripture and the way that you, again, hold Jesus and how you engage and keep view of uh, the God of, of the Israelites, um, can you lead us into conversation around First uh, Corinthians 12? Uh, can you uh, help us uh, uh, begin to unveil the significance here of what's happening in this text? When we talk about our congregations, when we talk about our world and politics, a lot of Christians want to do, um, they want to talk about the polarization that's happening in the U.S. And Jared, you're helping us understand that this polarization is happening internationally, too. That's right. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and specifically, American politics is polarizing everybody. Um, and I'm just looking up one thing because I want to reference it, if that's okay. Um and so a lot of books are about um, how to bring two sides together, how to bridge divides, how to have united purple congregations. Um, and I think that that is the wrong approach to unity, to bring, to act as if politics is an abstract idea hmm. that doesn't have material, a material impact and to try to unite people because of that, you know, like it was, it was uh there's a there's a book that came out right at the same time as mine um not in it to win it how the how taking aside sidelines the church and i'm like hey i kind of wrote the opposite book about jesus taking aside it was just really interesting that it happened at the same time that is hilarious his book is selling much better than mine however <laughs> but that's the idea the polarization really overcoming our political divides is really a theme in the church. So we see an extremely polarized country an extremely polarized church, especially when it re relates to um, Republican uh, or, or Donald Trump's presidency and how it really activated people in opposition, right? Um, but we can see the absolute failure of that when that when we when we talk to racial minorities, sexual minorities, other kind of minorities whose backs bear that so-called unity more than anybody if your church is politically pluralistic and you don't take a prophetic stand against injustice the victims of injustice will feel it more hmm. that is not a way to unite our bodies on the contrary it's a way to divide them yeah this passage Unity in the body of Christ is used so often to stifle political dialogue, political action in our churches. Don't be divisive. Don't be political. That's what every white evangelical tells me. Don't be divisive. Politics is divisive. Don't, don't um, focus on your race. Don't focus you know, on your sexuality. We're all one in Christ. There's neither Greek nor Jew. And Paul even says... We're baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves are free. It's the motif in Paul's writings that we're not separated by these things. That doesn't mean to ignore those things. It means to pay attention to how those things divide us. Paul is saying here very explicitly, if you want unity, elevate the dishonored parts, elevate the parts you oppress. That's how you have no dissension in the body. Look at the body parts that you think of as less than, that you feel ashamed of, that you are oppressing, and then lift them up, elevate their voices. And when you do that, the body will be united. He says, on the contrary, the members of this body that seem to be, that seem to be weaker. Who are the people in our bodies that seem to be weaker? Who do we say are weaker? In the Corinthian church, 
if you look at uh, the Corinthian body by Dale Martin, he talks about the major fault line in the Corinthian church as being the weak, the lower status people, and the strong, the um, higher status people. And right before this, in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, y'all come to the communion table, and some of you overstuff yourselves and get drunk, and then the poor are left with nothing. Why are you desecrating the table of God that way? Have you no shame about this? Are you, do you want to humiliate those who have nothing? Paul is saying, before you get to the table, you need to be engaged in economic equity in your community. It's a shame against the gospel to do this. You don't, and we skip right to the words of institution. I think we should read the whole thing. Get right in the mix <laughs> about how income inequality and, 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 and inequity in general, when it comes to racial and sexual minorities in our bodies, divide us and make a mockery of the table of Christ, which is supposed to unite us. So he says, on the contrary, members that, of the body that have just seem to be weaker or indispensable. And those members of the body that we think of as less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. Give greater honor to the body parts that you've shamed. And what does that mean in our churches? You know, I can't think of anything but LGBTQIA brothers and sisters, siblings, and then also our racial minorities, right? Um, but our more respectable members don't need this. If you have power, if you have privilege, if you have wealth means you don't need the same treatment we're not treating everybody the same the people that have been oppressed need to be uplifted and so no you can't have a table set where you have people sitting there that think it's okay for police to kill black people that it's mm. okay to denigrate lgbtqia people that it's okay to deport immigrants those three ideas for example and the opposite pole is not people who think it's wrong to kill black people if you're police, people who think it's wrong to denigrate LGBTQIA people or to deport immigrants. The other side isn't an idea. The other side are black people, queer people, and immigrants. It's not an idea. They're people. Hmm. It's a, it's, we're not comparing two different forms of politics. You have mm -hmm. a politics that is opposed to the very humanity and dignity of these people, right? That's why Howard Thurman says the best way to confront your oppressor is to stand in sincerity, stand mm -hmm. in their face, let them see you. I'm a man, right? That's what, we, that's what they said in the civil rights protest. You have to see my humanity. I'm not an idea. I'm not critical race theory. I'm not wokeism, whatever it is. I'm a person and my dignity counts. And your ideas are against me. There is no church where you have an idea where people are opposed to a whole group of people. And then we're supposed to bridge the gap. Yeah. No, you lift up the people that are oppressed. And then those that aren't, you don't, you, 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 you actually have to bring down, right? That's what Mary says in the Magnificat, right? Yep. So that's right. That's, that's how you have a united body. Fill the valleys, mm -hmm. lower the hills. That's what we're yeah. doing. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 12. So I like using Paul because he is not seen. Like, it's interesting. You read the Gospels and it's real clear, in my opinion. But Paul is giving you the same radical egalitarian message over and over and over again mm -hmm. in Corinthians, in Galatians, in Romans, that 
We're trying to have an ethnically diverse body where everybody is treated equally. And there's a lot of dissension and there's people with power, there's people with wealth, there's people with intelligence that think they're better than, and now we can be united. Now we can be together. If you lift up the parts of the body that you've dishonored. And so to me, there is no greater evidence of what it looks like to be united as a body than to lift up the voices of the marginalized. Jesus tells us this, you know, however you treat the least of these, you treated me, right? He keeps, he surrounds the little ones. He finds the people that are available for the gospel. And then Paul follows in the same ethic once again. Yeah. Amen. You're preaching. You're so preaching, good. Johnny. You're preaching. So good. Yeah, that's so good. And I think, um, I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, even as you're just, you know, just reemphasizing Paul's commitment to the least, last and lost. I mean, that's literally how he starts out First Corinthians, right, is, you know, it, Christ crucified, which unveils the the wisdom and power of God. And then he goes on to talk about his implications. God has chosen the weak to shame the strong, right? God has chosen those that are considered nothing to shame those that are considered uh, something. And so um, from the beginning all the way through the end, it's pretty consistent um, that his commitment is with those that are on the underside, with those that you mentioned, right? Those that are the poor who are being excluded in communion. Um, And I think that... um, the ways in which, I mean, so to to echo your earlier points, the all the mental gymnastics um, to domesticate, to turn unity into, um, you know, this kind of homogenous, safe, feel-good, sentimental moment that has no actual political implications for how we organize our lives together um, is quite striking. And I think that um, your emphasis on elevating the parts uh, of the body that have been oppressed, that have been shamed, that have been denigrated, right? Um, this is central to what it means to participate in the reign of God. So yeah, mm-hmm. amen, amen. I would really love if neo-Anabaptist pastors got this message clearly mm-hmm. oh, because yeah. there is a lot of excitement around our church isn't polarized. We have people from different political parties, Jesus wasn't this way or that way and keep listening to the, the the minorities in your church that give you the privilege to listen to them still that haven't left yet um and pay attention to what they need it is mm. possible for mm, us to really have good. racially diverse congregations specifically sexually diverse congregations if we are able to listen to one another otherwise we're gonna find churches that include us we're gonna find mm. Um, bodies that are homogenous, that are like-minded, that lift us up. You know, the weight of being in a church and in a society that demands pluralism, but has no movement towards justice or equity is really heavy, you know? Mm, death dealing, death dealing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I always, there's an image I often use in some of my um, like trainings. There's this, I think it's from 19, I want to say 19... 15. Um, it's an image called, I think it's called the hope for Christ um, or hope for the world. That's what it is. Hope for the world. But it's this image. There's this white Jesus right in the middle. Totally. And then there's like, have you seen that before? And then the different mm-hmm. little kids all around him from all around the world. Right. And in particular, what's most striking, which people are always shocked by is 
Um, there's a black child who he, it's the only one that's not touching Jesus, that's on the ground, that's naked, and you can't see the child's face at all. And so embedded is white Jesus, then these children from all around the world, and then this like extremely anti-black thing. But but what's striking about the image is I'm pretty sure that in the mindset of the person who created it, they were trying to create a multicultural rights image that was supposed to be positive while they're reproducing hierarchy that's uplifting white supremacy. And what you're challenging is, is precisely decentralizing whiteness itself, right? Or whatever the power systems mm. may be, uh, and actually explicitly finding where who have been the ones who've had their backs against the wall who are the ones right. right uh that have been in the cracks and the margins and the edges of society and those are going to be the folks that we're going to create and and elevate and centralize and that's a, the basis upon which uh true christian unity can be found and if we don't actually practice that if we don't put it into flesh if we don't organize a new right reconfigure our lives in completely new ways um then we can't even begin to claim to be uh engaging and practicing christian unity in any kind of meaningful way absolutely you know when you describe that image of that kid who's down on the ground, you can't even see his face. The first thing I thought of was that's where Jesus is. Jesus yeah. is right there by that oppressed person. That's, that's right. where Jesus is, you know, yeah. and that's how Jesus postured himself in the world, you know, with the downtrodden, you know, <laughs> feeling our pain, feeling our suffering. This, this is the importance, Johnny. And uh, I love how Drew has taken this discussion back to the start of first Corinthians as well that we preach Christ and, and him crucified, that remembering that crux itself is, um, you, you know, it's scandalous. Like it, um, Drew's heard this story before, Johnny, but um, uh, my boys found out that um, uh, cross or crux uh, was the equivalent um, of like a curse word in polite company. Um, and so uh, they started saying crux, uh, like they'll drop something and they'll be like, oh, crux is a running joke in the house. And we, like, it's helpful. We, we've built on that because where this takes us is um, uh, where some liberals will um, go, let's, Paul isn't helpful when looking for the radical politics of Jesus uh, because Paul has um, uh, no contact with Jesus other than um, his own spiritual experiences. Um, and that's why you don't get, uh, much uh, of Jesus's life other than his death and resurrection um, to, to argue the other way. And Rowan Williams makes this point that that in itself is enough to explain the politics that you've just spelled out here. Uh, what it is to understand that um, uh, any talk of cross is like incredibly offensive at the time and to be um, uh, that God is reconciling us to God's self in Christ is it's at that point of offense, at the point of vulnerability, at the point where people would think it was a lesser and there's nothing to be found here, mm -hmm. at the point where that is where God is found. And the only unity there is in Christ <laughs> is in Jesus, which, which shouldn't be that much of a, a scandal to people. But for so many um, uh, like conservatives and liberal, talk of Christ gets removed um, from the life of Jesus and um, him crucified and what it is that, no, it's, it's actually in the shame of a, a, a God who's revealed as nonviolent power that there is any unity at all. A anything else is a false Christ. A anything else is a promise that there can be some unity that isn't found 
around the ministry, the life, death, the resurrection and ascension of this Jesus. I want to pick up, uh, John, you mentioned neo-anabaptists. And um, uh, the other day, so I was at Northern because um, David Fitch is, I think, has an influence on the whole neo-anabaptist thing going on over there. Um, Him and Michael Moore invited me over. And so I was teaching my anablactivism course and I was explaining, you know, I was kind of differentiating, you know, um, for a black church, all the different, you know, black Methodists, black Baptists, black Pentecostals on a different whatever. But then uh, uh, for the Anabaptists, uh, in some ways, it was even more complicated, right? Because you got Old Order Amish and Mennonite and, you know, but then you got the mainstream Mennonite Church USA and BIC and Church of the Brethren and Hutterites and Bruderhoffs and all kinds of stuff, right? And then you have Neo-Anabaptists and, and I would say many schools that break off from that. Um, but I did you know, emphasize to them, because there was quite a number of folks there who identified as neo-anabaptists that um, that many neo-anabaptists are reduplicating the very same things that they had just left, right, in white evangelicalism, especially when it comes to um, politics, right, um, and power, and, and or maybe, I was going to say, uh, they're not analysis of power, but it's really their lack of analysis of power, right? Yeah. Um, that I think is so shocking sometimes, even to the point that um, I was bringing up, you know, 16th century um, and a baptism was in the context of poor peasants rebellion, right? Like that's totally. the context that it emerges. And most of them didn't even know that in the room, some of them like that's, and they've never been. And I said, now, why is it that you've been reading all these Anabaptist texts right from white neo-anabaptists and none of them have mentioned that the context upon which anabaptism emerges is out of uh uh rebellion to the to the serfdom and the exploitation and lack of access to lands and what i mean that's the when you read i actually had yeah. them go over the 12 what's it the swabian peasants uh demands right actually because i wanted them to see i was like look uh like this is before Marx. They're making these same points, and and some of them are ecclesial concerns too. Um, and I and for us to see that the shared interests of the Anabaptists and these poor peasant rebellions are so deeply tied together. Um, that's the context, right? And I think when you strip, um, you know, that kind of socioeconomic backdrop to 16th century Anabaptism, you get this kind of fluffy, meaningless Absolutely. thing where people cannot take sides. I mean, if if the, st- the state church's oppression in Europe is so important to Anabaptist formation, the resistance to being political just means resistance to the state, right? right. We're not going to get baptized as, as babies because we can't be baptized into the state. We're going to resist that. In That's the United right. States with freedom of religion and the freedom of the state and all these things, it doesn't, it's hard to even apply that ethic here. And so yeah. we have to understand, well, what does it mean to be an Anabaptist now in the U.S.? Yeah. You know, Hauerwas, who isn't an Anabaptist, but is a friend of them, will say that freedom of um, religion becomes its own God. You submit to the freedom that the state gives you to exercise your worship, but you have to be subversive to the state still. And so for, for Americans, for American Anabaptists, we have to imagine what is the political order that we're resisting? We're not, mm. it's not about resisting partisanship or, or, or political engagement. It's about resisting the things that order us in the same way that the state church does. And it's hard to understand that as 
as Americans, because it's not that explicit, because the state is not as conspicuously ordering us as other things are. Though I, I mean, in black communities, it's clear how the state orders us, right? Through violence, through the police, you know, but in, in other communities, it's hard to understand how market capitalism, neoliberalism, mm -hmm. whiteness sorts us in a way that demands the same kind of resistance that these Anabaptists had in Europe now. And so, mm -hmm. I mean, Drew's work is all about this, but it's yep. so important for us to connect um, Anabaptist resistance with liberation theology. That they, are, they, 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 it is the, the, the um, American expression of it. And Black liberation theology, specifically in the United mm -hmm. States, you know, not even just Latin American liberation theology, which has a strong economic praxis, but also, you know, womenist Black liberation theology that talks about oppression in our context. And if, if we were really um, resistant to politics, we would be confronting these forces that order us in the same way that the state church ordered um, European countries. Johnny, I think I'm only connecting this now. Um, I mean, this is something that Drew and I talk about a lot, right? But um, I wonder in some sense whether the, the neo-Anabaptists um, uh, um, unity kind of ideology that's not found in Christ but is found in like um, white supremacist neoliberalism it is an expression of um, some of the cheapening of politics that you find on the left that Cornell West has been so um, helpful in critiquing where there is a, um, a diversity um, in uh, what is often cheaply called identity politics but it actually doesn't connect with um, uh, dignity, integrity, and solidarity, as Cornel West would say, around um, actually transforming the economic systems that we exist in. Um, and whether in the same way there's um, the lack of um, dignity, integrity, and solidarity, um, the, the church is found where Jesus is, um, what it is for people to claim to be the church but not be found where Jesus is, is at best not faithful and at worst an anathema to the gospel. Absolutely. Um, but Jesus is found in this situation with people who are oppressed. And the question is, are we? Mm -hmm. You know, I think Brother West is absolutely right that, you know, the, the joke is intersectional imperialism, right? Like you still <laughs> like, like That's amazing. Yeah. Like it was a big deal when uh, the CEO of uh, DuPont chemical, which made, um, um, which made Agent Orange in the Vietnam War, right, um, was gay. So, like, you have a gay, a, a gay uh, manufacturer of weapons, right? It defeats the purpose. Raytheon advertises that it has women engineers that make bombs that kill people, right? So, mm -hmm. no, I don't think and Margaret that... Thatcher as a like um, there you go poster for feminism. I'm like, what feminism are we talking about when Margaret Thatcher is a model uh, for like? transformation we definitely need um i mean i would say the intersection of class is really important um and i would say that 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 is the fundamental distinction between contextual theology and liberation theology hmm. so some contextual theology is just and it's appropriate and it's good to bring the text bring the bible bring christianity into different um sociological contexts whether you're a person of color, whether you're disabled, whether you're queer, 
But liberation is the key. We're not just putting the Bible into context. It has to liberate us from our oppression. And then you have to intersect with class and with power, you know, and a baptism without that is toothless. Right. It doesn't, right. it's not there, you know. I and understand. It's often quite explicitly, Johnny, sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead, please. Often quite explicitly is, um, no, 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 not at all, but it's um, reformed theology plus pacifism in a in a mega church kind of seeker-friendly setting. But like I've seen people who are supposed leaders of neo-anabaptism actually like teach straight reformed theology, maybe of a generous um, uh, uh, kind um, and say, but this needs to be pacifist as if that's what the Anabaptist witness is. Or, uh, that's impossible to understand. I mean, uh, what I see is, and I, I wish they would take, I mean, honestly, I mean, it's, it's, it's this neo-Anabaptists plus neo-Calvinists come up with this new idea. But if you actually read Calvin, if you read Calvin and Menno right next to each other, they have a lot of similarities in their <laughs> resistance to the state. You know, Calvin's more interested, Calvin's cool with killing people at times, so Menno is going to have a different approach, but they have a similar resistance to the state if you actually, um, if you actually hold them together. But I think you're absolutely right. And I think there is a lack of theological rigor when it comes to this. Um, I think, I think reformed theology leaks into all of our churches because the majority of contemporary Christian music just has reformed theology into it. And then mm. we're all of a sudden we're singing theology and then it gets stuck in our heads. And then we all, we're all doing penal substitutionary atonement for some reason, you know, that's the, like, cause that's all the songs we sing. That's just how it mm. works. Um, but I think that the temptation for the Neo Anabaptist is, Hey, we see terrible things among the political participation of Christians, which in the United States is mainly the religious right. Right. The moral majority, these type of things. And so we're not going to engage politically. Oh, cool. We found this Christian tradition that isn't political. It's called Anabaptism. Let's do that. And they forget about the resistance. They forget about what's or they didn't even know about it. Right. Mm. Um, it is beyond frustrating to me. And I won't I, I won't mention any names today because I don't want to. Although it's not beyond me to do this, but I won't for the sake of this podcast. Um there are people that brag about having bringing enemies together, but not doing the necessary work to make unity occur. The lion can only lay next to the lamb because it doesn't want to eat the lamb. It doesn't have an appetite anymore. So it has divested of its violence, you know? So like, yeah, cops and ICE agents are welcome at our churches. Just take your uniforms off. You know, there is no such thing as a blue life. There is such thing as a black life. There are different things. This is your job that you elected to do. And this is my heritage, who I am. There are different mm. things. Don't compare them. It's, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not the same. And it isn't unity to put them together as if it's okay. You know, unless you want to dehumanize the black person or the right. minority of any kind you're asking them it's the opposite of what paul's saying in first corinthians 12 they actually have to you 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 lower the person to keep unity and that is horrifying you know and that's you know when you cause the little ones to stumble jesus says it'll be better for you to be thrown into the sea of galilee with a millstone hung around your neck than the judgment that awaits you jesus is really serious 
when you yeah. cause the oppressed to stumble. It is not good. And so for all the people listening that have thrown away the Bible, that don't want to participate in church, you know, I believe you have a place in the age to come because Jesus, Jesus' grace still covers you because mm-hmm. of what happens to you at the expense of what, what happened to you because of the, how the gospel was preached or mm-hmm. preached, right? Um, I'm really serious about that because I think that faith is delicate. We're dealing with, we're dealing with delicate seeds. It's really hard to grow faith and hold it in an oppressive environment. And one of the reasons we want to be anti-oppressive is so that people can have faith that flourishes, that nourishes, that lets us be creative and in community and loving one another. You know, all this anti-oppression work is preliminary work for a flourishing community, a loving right. community. You know, we're, we're doing what we need to do so that we can actually plant healthy churches that grow and love and connect. Um, and when we fail to do that work, when we don't do that work, we're just throwing people to the lions and it's dangerous. It's scary. You know, mm-hmm. it's traumatizing. It's, it can be abusive even. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so good. It's so good. And one of the ways I, I mean, you were talking about the neo-anabaptists wanting to bring everybody together at the expense of those who are most vulnerable. And I, the one example I give historically to just help people understand the implications of why that's so harmful, because clearly some people, it's just like the skulls don't even want to like internalize, right? The significance of what we're talking about. So I always mention, um, after so after the civil war right and you have this almost decade period of reconstruction right just short of a decade and then what happens is that the north white northerners decide that they want to reconcile right that's the word they want to reconcile with their white southern brethren right um and so how do they do that at the expense of black people right and so they remove all the troops and all that stuff they reconcile let's have our moment together but whose expense it is now to unleash literally the nadir of black suffering right in terms Mm. of lynching uh in terms of uh, black codes in terms of convict leasing systems and chain gangs and sharecropping and all this violence that's just completely unleashed with no protection under the law for black people at all right um and that's reconciliation and i think that that's often what is actually happening in many communities when they want ice agents and uh you know undocumented people to be in worship together and yet at the same time um not asking that uh ice agent to repent and to 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 lay down his his vocation and that that is his path towards true reconciliation right is that he cannot participate in this violent system the way that he has in the past absolutely absolutely and and we don't we don't have to go there um, by name, but w- which, in fairness to um, the particular tweet that is being referred to, that some might know, um, uh, uh, those people um, stayed with me, lived with me uh, as I lived with seventeen refugees, have been incredibly supportive of us challenging um, the Australian, um, you know, demonic immigration system and our response um, and their response in their own church um, did involve that, but it was a tweet that was in no way helpful and then left them in a position that if they explain that publicly, it puts people 
at risk. But I, I know exactly what's being talked about. And that's why I think it is helpful to not name uh, particular cases because the, the tweet itself did contain the, um, uh, the imaginary that we're seeking to name, right? That like, um, he, he, here is the, um, the leopard and the lamb lying down um, together. And it's like, no, it's not. It still has its teeth. This is dangerous. Like yeah. so, there are forces that must be defanged before they, they can participate on the holy mountain. Johnny, th this is incredibly helpful, mate. Um, and this conversation, I, I think you can see in the chat, people listening on. I'm found so glad about it. Just, yeah. And I love your point about contextual theology. Uh, I'm not a biblicist. Um, uh, my, my standard running joke would be um, my regard for the scriptures is too high to be a, a biblicist a tradition um, uh, and a, a living community, um, uh, you know, in, in the mix in how I um, understand such texts. But I, I will say that I think part of um, the importance of the lives of the saints is that contextual theology might put us in a position where we ask, um, what does Jesus mean for you? While um, I think one of the helpful things of the lives of the saints or liberation theology, for that matter, it will ask, no, no, in the lives of these particular people, um, whether it may be a um, Simone Weil or a, um, a, you know, an Ella Baker or a Vincent Lignari, um, what, does, what does the text mean in their context? Mm. And then what does Jesus mean in their context? And therefore, what does Jesus mean for me because of their context that I'm being called into. And I think um, church tradition read that way and the saints read that way uh, provides a hermeneutic um, that um, actually like complements and um, uh, uh, walks hand in hand with what you've sought to, to do with the text as well, which is, which is beautiful, mate. This has been really, really rich. So fun to be here. Thanks so much. Yep. Yeah, always a pleasure, Johnny. I feel like I don't know when's the last time we actually shared space together. It's been a minute, but um, hopefully we'll have cross paths again. Maybe next time I'm in Philly. But That'd be great. Um, we should do that, man. Let me know when yeah. you're here. Yeah, definitely got to do that. Um, are there? Um, how can people keep up with the work that you're doing? How can they find your book um, if they want to stay up with what you're doing? Yeah. Follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Johnny Rashid. There's no H in Johnny, J-O-N-N-Y-R-A-S-H-I-D. I'm an avid co home cook. You can go to Food Pastor at Instagram and see what I'm cooking. That's just, <laughs> that's just a fun project for me. I'm doing um, that John now, Johnny. I didn't even know about that. That's fine. Jo Johnny Rashid is... The, my website where I blog every week about various current events and, uh, and so on. Um, you can see an article that came out in May on Matthew 18, power of violence and loosing, loosing and binding in Matthew 18, how in Matthew 18 can be weaponized against um, oppressed people. That's out in earth and altar. And then it, I just finished an article that's coming out in the Mennonite leader magazine in the winter about um, the financial cost of following Jesus. So I do a little bit of work on mm. um, another very apparent message in the Bible, which mm. is how much Jesus talks about money. Um, and then what that means for us as Christians, when it comes to things like um, reparations, gentrification, things like that. So I hope that we can participate practically in, in changing how our world works. So good, Johnny. So good. Well, um, we'll wrap up the, the official uh, 
part of the podcast that goes out to the masses but do you still have some time for some yeah, let's do it. for those that yeah, yeah yeah that'd be fun um the inverse podcast is proudly supported by you the listener and if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse 